it gives me very great pleasure to introduce to you Professor Gregory Nash, a pleasure only exceeded by that of meeting him myself. For many years now, I've heard of Professor Nash from students who have come across his works, from a close friend, a professor of archaeology, who told me how helpful his summer course for teachers had meant to her, and from members of our faculty. Professor Nash began his teaching career at Harvard in 1966, where he was a professor of classics until 1973. From 1973 to 75, he taught at the Johns Hopkins University. Returning to Harvard in 1975, he taught Latin and Greek there until 1984. Since then, he has been teaching classical Greek literature and comparative literature at the Cambridge campus. He's the author of a book whose title should capture the attention of all of us. It's called The Best of the Achaeans. You cannot guess who this is, and the answer contains a tragedy. I think you will hear tonight an example of classical scholarship at its best. Professor Nash. much for your warm welcome. The subject of this inquiry is the Homeric paradigma, which I translate for the moment by way of Latin exemplum, following the lead of earlier inquiries. article on the subject of mythological exemplum in Homer, Malcolm Wilcock proposes that the contents of myths cited by Homeric characters with reference to their own situations are oftentimes a matter of ad hoc personal invention by the poet. In a follow-up work, arguing specific cases of ad hoc inventions of myth in the Iliad, Wilcox sums up his position this way, I quote, Homer has a genial habit of inventing mythology for the purpose of adducing it as a parallel to the situation of his story. End of quote. I suggest that the description genial applies more to Wilcox himself whose achievements as scholar and teacher merit the deepest admiration. I begin by recording my own admiration of Wilcock because my disagreement with his formulation is not hostile and in fact does not affect some of his basic findings. The frequency of my references to Wilcock in what follows reflects a recognition of the pervasive influence that his formulation of Homeric paradigma, or exemplum, has achieved in classical scholarship. In this field, it could be argued, his formulation has even reached the status of a paradigma in itself. Here I'm thinking of the English derivative of paradigma, paradigm. 
in the specific sense of Thomas Kuhn's terminology in his inquiry into the structure of scientific revolutions. What I propose is not a displacement of Wilcox's paradigm, but rather, to borrow again from Kuhn's terminology, a paradigm shift with some new additions as well as subtractions. A successful paradigm shift, as Kuhn observes, should make it possible to account for a wider range of phenomena or to account more precisely for some of those that are already known. Such a gain is achieved only by discarding some previously standard beliefs or procedures and simultaneously by replacing those components of the previous paradigm with others. It is in this spirit that I shall cite in the arguments that follow the names of a few classicists who are recognized experts on the subject of Homeric poetry. Those that figure most prominently are Jasper Griffin and Malcolm Wilcock himself. There will be a third name that I'll mention at a later point, which is Verdenius. When I mention Verdenius, I will raise my hand like this. And that will tell you that I am only five minutes away from closing. <laughs> These and other names in my presentation are highlighted not for the sake of controversy, but because they represent the primary authorities for the paradigms that are being challenged. Let us begin with the central challenge. I call into question the very idea that Homeric myth is a matter of personal invention. Such an idea, I shall argue, leads to an attitude that divorces the study of Homeric poetry under the control of classicists from the study of myth as illuminated by the discipline of social anthropology. The divorce is suggested in Wilcox's own conclusion. I quote from him, if Homer invents so freely, it must be dangerous for us to use the Iliad as if it were a handbook of mythology, he says. Implicit in this statement is the recognition, however vaguely expressed, that the study of myth is indeed founded on some form of academic discipline. Explicit is the message that such a discipline is inappropriate to the study of Homer. A major problem, I suggest, lies in the instability of our own concept of myth, which leads to the destabilization of the concepts of creativity and invention in the contexts of myth. It is one thing for the ancient commentators to say that Homer created something for the moment as, for example, when Aristarchus, the great Alexandrian critic, takes this kind of stance about the story told by Thetis, retold by Achilles in Iliad I, about a conspiracy against Zeus by Hera, Poseidon, and Athena. After all, as Wilcock observes, the ancient commentators treat Homer as a creative poet. But it is quite another thing for modern commentators who wish to defend the creativity of Homer to describe this story as sheer invention. For the poets of ancient Greece, as I shall argue, 
creativity is a matter of applying to the present occasion myths that already exist. For modern commentators, however, creativity tends to be viewed as a matter of actively and consciously rejecting the versions of myths that already do exist. If indeed Homer is a creative poet, their reasoning goes, then whatever myths we find in Homer need not be ancient myths per se, but personal creations of new versions. Wilcock puts it this way. I quote from Wilcock. Of course, what Homer invented may in certain cases have become a part of mythology for later writers, but there's surely a qualitative difference between new poetic invention and the tradition from the past. Homer is very much at home in the traditional myths and often uses them as background for his improvisations. But his invention is of a different kind and origin. So the neo-analytical search for external sources for assertions about the past in the Iliad is a perilous one. It is far too easy to leap to conclusions and assume depths to hypothetical models. The so-called neo-analysts, and here Wilcock is thinking of people like Wolfgang Kuhlmann, point to the independent traditions of the so-called epic cycle, as attested primarily, for us at least, in the plot summaries of Proclus's Questomathy, in arguing for the existence of external sources for the myths of Homeric poetry. In the case of the Homeric passage that I've just cited about a conspiracy against Zeus by Hera, Poseidon, and Athena, neo-analysts are on the record as claiming an external source. This view is challenged in a 1980 book by Jasper Griffin entitled Homer on Life and Death, who explicitly sides with Wilcock in arguing with reference to this same passage that the poet of the Iliad even invents archaic-sounding myths. Griffin disagrees with Kuhlmann, who believes the story is really ancient. I had just used Griffin's actual wording, and the wording here makes it clear that, at least for Griffin, the myth in Iliad I about the conspiracy by Hera, Poseidon, and Athena against Zeus cannot be really ancient if indeed it is ad hoc to the narrative at hand. It is as though myth could not be traditional if it is ad hoc. I submit that such an assumption cannot be justified. My basic challenge to Griffin's paradigm of Homeric myth entails a call for adding the perspectives of social anthropology. Let us consider a statement about myth that has clearly benefited from such a perspective. According to Walter Burkert's working definition, myth is, quote, a traditional narrative that is used as a designation of reality. Myth is applied narrative. Myth describes a meaningful and important reality that applies to the aggregate going beyond the individual end of Burkert's definition. More needs to be said, however, about the meaning and the truth value of myth. From the viewpoint of a social anthropologist like myself, writes Sir Edmund Leach, 
myth loses all meaning when it is taken out of context. As Leach argues, myth is true for those who use it, but we cannot infer the nature of that truth simply by reading the text. We have to know the context to which the text refers. The empirical evidence of such a context, as ascertained by fieldwork in our era of recording machines, is the primary given of social anthropology. In the case of texts like the Iliad and Odyssey, unfortunately, we have, of course, no such direct evidence available. For social anthropologists like Leach, who recognize the stories of the Iliad and Odyssey as myths, the successful analysis of these stories as myths is nonetheless elusive for this very reason. Here's the way Leach puts it. We do not ignore literary evidence altogether, but we are very skeptical about the possibility of making ethnographic sense of literary texts which have been divorced from their original context of time and space, unquote. So what do we have here? We have Homerists like Griffin who don't need social anthropology. And we have, on the other hand, social anthropologists like Leach who say they can't use Homer. The problem can be extended even to myths gathered by anthropologists themselves if the context for those myths have been lost in translation, as it were. And here I give a rather hypercritical account of the work of Claude Lévi-Strauss by Leach himself. Leach says about Lévi-Strauss's work, as far as anthropology is concerned, a great deal of the present vogue for the study of mythology is a response to the stimulus provided by the work of Lévi-Strauss, in particular his essays on the structural study of myth, the story of Asdewal, and the four volumes of Mythologique. I think the one that we're most familiar with uh, is The Raw and the Cooked. Let me continue with Leach's critique. Uh, but in a technical sense, Leach says, all the myth data which Levi-Strauss uses is drastically defective. Most of it is completely divorced from its original social context, and all of it has suffered the deformations which result from transcription into a written text, ruthless abbreviation, and translation from the vernacular into a European language or even a succession of European languages. For example, most of the myths which are analyzed in Lévi-Strauss's Mythologique take up only a few lines of printed text and have been translated by Lévi-Strauss himself from similarly abbreviated Portuguese versions recorded by Christian missionaries. It seems highly probable that in context, this is still Leach talking, each paragraph of such material corresponds to several hours of oral recitation accompanied by elaborately staged dramatic performance. Well, these observations should be of particular concern to classicists whose familiarity with anthropological approaches to myth is based mainly on the works of Lévi-Strauss, as criticized here. Shall I write Lévi-Strauss out?
such familiarity is hardly a direct one for many English-speaking uh, students of the classics, who rely not on Levi Strauss, but on G.S. Kirk's introductory books about myth, featuring summaries of the summaries made by Levi Strauss as a shortcut to an understanding of structuralism. These are the dangers of secondary reading. <laughs> Worse still, these books by Jeffrey Kirk, G.S. Kirk, who is not an anthropologist, adopt an attitude of self-distancing from the very methods that he applies. What results is that readers are scared away from consulting directly the anthropological perspectives of Levi-Strauss himself. I suggest that not enough credit is being given to the methods of Levi-Strauss in analyzing the myths of small-scale societies like the Bororo of central Brazil, even if we may agree with Leach that not enough attention is being paid to the context of performance. The works of Levi-Strauss, I maintain, remain models of structuralist techniques in revealing the richness and complexity of human thought in the institutions of so-called primitive societies. You will notice that I regularly say small-scale societies rather than primitive societies. For many who read Kirk, however, the myths of small-scale societies like the Bororo will seem more as a foil for showing the distinctness and in many instances the purported superiority of the myths of the ancient Greeks. Such an attitude is criticized by Marcel Détienne in an essay bearing the sarcastic title, Les Grecs ne sont pas comme les autres. But surely the Greeks aren't like the rest of them. Worst of all, Kirk's very use of such things as Bororo myths for any kind of comparison with the Greeks is attacked by some classicists as an act of disloyalty to classicism. With specific reference to Kirk, Jasper Griffin writes of, quote, scholars who have begun to take seriously the bizarre myths of primitive peoples, unquote. Observing that the, quote, revolt from classicism, unquote, makes these myths, quote, seem deeper and truer than the human scale and coherent logic of the myths of Homer, unquote. Again, I see a need for the perspective of social anthropology as a corrective to Griffin's paradigm. Without even consulting Levi-Strauss directly, this is another evil of secondary literature, Griffin proceeds to quote at length one of Kirk's retellings of Levi-Strauss's retellings of selected Bororo myths, holding it up for extended ridicule all because this particular myth happened to become an object of Kirk's admittedly subjective admiration. That is to say, Kirk will say things like, um, I'll show you an example. Um, this myth has an eerie, almost poetical quality. It's a kind of condescending statement that Griffin is going after here. Anyway, as you can see, such is the fate of Bororo myths and of Levi-Strauss himself at the hands of one particular English-speaking scholar. All has been lost in translation. How hopeless it seems then, this task of making ethnographic sense of literary texts like Homeric poetry, if I can refer again to Leech's expression. Well, all hope is not lost. 
there may yet be ways of talking about the myths of Homeric poetry as they are performed in context. Although the outermost narrative frames of the Iliad and Odyssey, the two monumental compositions themselves, give us for all practical purposes no, inf purposes, no information whatsoever about context of performance, let alone occasion, the stories that are framed by the compositions, the myths actually spoken by Homeric characters, are indeed contextualized. In a 1989 book entitled The Language of Heroes, Richard Martin shows how Homeric narrative actually recovers, albeit in stylized form, the contexts of speech acts, such as formal boasts, threats, laments, invectives, prophecies, prayers. The concept of speech act derives from the theories of J.L. Austin and J.R. Searle concerning the performative aspects of language. A speech act, according to Austin and Searle, entails a situation where the antithesis of word and action is neutralized in that the word is the action. My favorite example, somebody says to somebody else, you are fired. That's not just saying something, that's doing something. But you notice if, uh, let's say, in the Navy, somebody says, all hands on deck, that's a speech act. But if I go to Harvard Square and scream, all hands on deck, there, then it's not a speech act. When Hector is lamented by Andromache at the end of the Iliad, to cite our own Homeric example, her lamentation is not just a set of words spoken by a Homeric character and quoted by Homeric narrative. It is a speech act, a formal lament, brought to life by the narrative. And it follows all the rules of women's lamentation. I shall now argue that myth itself, as spoken by Homeric characters in ad hoc situations, is such a speech act. There is a key word that figures in this argument. As Martin shows in his book, Language of Heroes, a word used in Homeric diction to designate any speech act is mythos, ancestor of our word myth. In Homeric diction, the Greek word for myth reveals itself in its broadest sense. The semantics of mythos bring to life in microcosm the privileged status of myth in Homeric poetry. In order to grasp the special meaning of mythos, let me for a moment consider the distinction between what Prague school linguists call unmarked and marked aspects of oppositions. Can I give you just a few very quick examples? If you take the opposition of lion and lioness in the English language, you would say that lion is the unmarked member of the opposition because you're not thinking of the gender of the animal when you say lion. When you say lioness, that has to be a female lion. To show that it works the other way around, let's take the opposition of duck and drake. When you say 
duck, you don't necessarily think of the gender. When you say Drake, it has to be a male duck. One of the interesting things about this kind of unmarked, marked opposition is that in most situations, the unmarked can include the marked. So for example, the category of lion includes lioness. The category of duck includes Drake. That is why I don't have to say, I don't have to say Donald Drake. Okay. And you can apply this same kind of model to everyday speech, but you don't even want to say everyday because that's the unmarked category. Let's just say speech and then special speech, marked speech. That's what we're talking about when we're talking about mythos. So there's default speech and then there's special speech, mythos. We find that marked speech occurs as a rule in ritual contexts, at least in small-scale societies. It is also in such societies that we can observe most clearly the symbiosis, the coexistence of ritual and myth, and how the language of ritual and myth is marked, while everyday language, whatever that is, is unmarked. Can I give you a quick example from the Greek language? This is a surviving example. if you look it up in the Greek to English dictionary, will be defined as, I have my eyes closed, or I have my mouth closed. Let's look at the derivatives. Let me pitch this a little louder. Neural mysteries, mysterion. Now I get back to my mud speech here. Mysteries, that second word means he who is initiated. Mysterion means that into which you are initiated. As we know from the dynamics of Greek initiation and most initiation practices across a wide range of societies of the world, when you're initiated, you get to see and say in a special way special truths. What does that mean? That means that neural, which is defined in Greek to English dictionaries as, I have my eyes closed, I have my mouth closed, means that only when you're outside of sacred space, when you step inside of sacred space, marked space, then neural means what? I see in a special way, I say in a special way. And that's why mystes means he who sees and says in a special way, and mysterion is what you see and say in a special way. The trouble is, when you go from marked situation to unmarked situation, then it's 
I had my eyes closed, I had my mouth closed. Spoken like a true initiate. And of course, the Greek mysterion gives us Latin mysterium, which gives us English mystery. Another derivative of neuro is mythos. This word, it has been argued, is a derivative of neuro. It had, at an earlier stage, meant special speech, marked speech, as opposed to everyday speech. May I just very quickly give you a striking example of this from Oedipus's, from Sophocles' Oedipus at Colonus. At Lyon 1641 to 1644, the visualization and the verbalization of what exactly happened to Oedipus when he vanished in the precinct of the Eumenides at Colonus is restricted in that the precise location of the hero's corpse is a sacred secret. Only the king of Athens, Theseus, by virtue of being the proto-priest for the Athenians of the here and now, is to witness what happened, which is called the Dromena, and this is the word that Jane Harrison had used to designate ritual in her formulation, myth is the plot of the dromenon. Thus the visualization and the verbalization of the myth, what happened to Oedipus, is restricted to the sacred context of ritual controlled by the heritage of priestly authority from Theseus, culture hero of the Athenian democracy. Well, let me just boil it all down. From, a, from an anthropological point of view, myth is indeed special speech in that it is a given society's way of affirming its own reality. Uh, Leach offers perhaps the most useful synthesis, and I'd like to read this for you because it really gets it all together. Edmund Leach says about myth, the various stories the myths of a given society form a corpus. They lock in together to form a single theological, cosmological, juridical whole. Stories from one part of the corpus presuppose a knowledge of stories from all other parts. There is implicit cross-reference from one part to another. It is an unavoidable feature of storytelling that events are made to happen one after another, but in cross-reference, such sequence is ignored. It is as if the whole corpus referred to a single instant of time, namely the present moment. Well, Leach's description of myth fits ideally the case of the myth told by Thetis, retold by Achilles in Iliad one about that conspiracy against Zeus by Hera, Poseidon, and Athena. In an important article that demands far more recognition than it has so far received, Mabel Lang has shown convincingly that this myth fits into a whole corpus, if I may apply Nietzsche's term, of interconnected myths spread throughout the Iliad concerning conflicts of the Olympian gods. We can sum it up this way. The story is presented in seven different passages of the Iliad. 
They make up four complementary pairs, appearing in six widely spaced books, 1, 5, 14, 15, 20, and 21. Therefore, it is highly unlikely that all these references were invented separately to illuminate particular situations in the Iliad. Arguing against Wilcox's notion of ad hoc personal invention, Lang shows in detail how a complex and consistent set of paradigmata, or exempla, concerning conflicts of the gods, as attested within the Iliad, has, can I use this word, priority over the narrative points where the paradigmata are cited by the characters of the Iliad. The myths are already there, ready to be applied. If the myth, which is presented as a paradigma, has suffered very much in the way of innovation, Lang argues, it will have lost its persuasive power as a precedent to be respected. Now, I would like to rephrase that a little bit. I would rather say, if I were Lang, if a myth is felt to have suffered very much in the way of innovation, then it loses its prestige as a model to be respected. I'll explain why I have that, that fudge factor in a minute. Just as the characters in Homeric narrative are represented as making the myths ad hoc, so also in real-life situations of small-scale societies, as described by social anthropologists like Leach, the tellers of myths apply these myths to their own situations. The principal use to which these stories are put is to justify whatever is now being done. That's the way Leach puts it. Following Malinowski, Leach asserts that myths provide charters for social action. That is using Malinowski's term. Moreover, this formula can be reversed. It is not just that the myth provides a model for social reality, but that social behavior is conducted as if the myth referred to a presently existing real world in which human beings attempt to participate. It follows, however, that any destabilization of this real world affects not only the stability, but the very survival of myth. And we are still talking about a phase of Greek society where myth is stable. If we get to the fifth century, I'll have to start talking about instability. In any case, the idea that myth is special speech, a given society's way of affirming its own reality, brings us back to the theories of Austin and Searle concerning the performative aspects of language. For them, a speech act, as we have seen, is a situation where the antithesis of word and action is neutralized in that the word as we've seen, is the action. Here I invoke Barbara Johnson's application of Austin's notion of speech act to poetry, an application that Austin himself resisted. It's to me a source of wonder that the person who starts speech, speech act theory does not want to say that poetry is a speech act. For Austin, it is not. Well, anyway, uh, 
Barbara Johnson's application is taken even further in Richard Martin's book, The Language of Heroes, which extends the notion of speech act to the oral performance of oral poetry, the dynamics of which have been made well known through the pathfinding works of Norman Parry and my teacher, Albert Lord. I mean, the ironic thing is that uh, the Parry-Lord theory has been relying on the concept of performance a very important concept that the French, when they got hold of it, had to use franglais to approximate. The French don't have a word for performance, so not everybody says performance. <laughs> and, and this concept that has been used by Perry and Lord all these years has never, until 1989, been extended to speech act theory, which is otherwise known as performative theory. As Martin shows, the mythos is not just any speech act reported by poetry, it is also the speech act of the poetry itself. In this light, myth implies ritual and the very performance of myth. That is to say, if you perform myth, that is ritual. By quoting mythos as in a mythological exemplum, Homeric poetry shows how the mythos of poetry can be applied. So even if we don't know how Homeric poetry was applied directly, the myths inside Homeric poetry, the way they are applied, shows how myth can be applied outside as well. I advocate, then, an approach to the use of mythological exemplum in Homer that differs from the paradigms of Wilcock or Griffin on the matter of ad hoc invention. It also differs, however, from that of the neo-analysts who believe that the myths of Homer are drawn generally from earlier sources. I can formulate it this way. Even if we were to accept for the moment the dubious notion that parts of the Homeric cycle are drawn from some text that predates our Iliad and Odyssey, the fundamental objection remains the same. When we are dealing with the traditional poetry of the Homeric and Hesiodic compositions, it is not justifiable to claim that a passage in any text can refer to another passage in another text. Such a restriction of approaches in Homeric and Hesiodic criticism is one of the most important lessons to be learned from the findings of Norman Parry and Albert Lord on the nature of traditional oral poetry. It's better to confine ourselves to examining whether a poem that is composed in a given tradition may refer to other traditions of composition. Thus, for example, our Odyssey may theoretically refer to traditional themes that are central to the stories of the Cupria, or, or even to stories of the Iliad, for that matter. But even in that case, such traditional themes would have varied from composition to composition. There may theoretically be as many variations on a theme as there are compositions. Any theme is but a multiform, that is to say, a variant, and not one of the multiforms can may be considered a functional protoform, an ur form. Only by hindsight can we consider the themes of our Iliad to be the best of possible themes. Such a stance relying on techniques of investigating oral poetry not only differs with the neo-analysts, it also challenges the paradigm represented by Jasper Griffin, for whom Norman Parry's application of oral theory 
to be aid in Odyssey has led to feelings of, quote, disappointment at the amount of light it has shed on the poems themselves, unquote. For Griffin, the oral theory is of little use for an aesthetic understanding of Homer. Conceding that the Iliad and Odyssey are heirs to an oral tradition, in that they at least represent the end of a tradition of oral poetry, Griffin nonetheless insists that it suffices to approach Homer, quote, with aesthetic methods not essentially or radically new, absorbing caution, and avoiding arguments which are ruled out by an oral origin of the work. As we shall see presently, Griffin's stance in this regard is destined to fall by the wayside as he proceeds through the rest of his book, but at least for the moment, he allows himself to make a concession to oral origin in the context of citing, as an excuse for bypassing the work of Parry and Lord, the work of Ruth Finnegan entitled Oral Poetry. This book, which seems to be misreading Parry's concept of the formula in oral poetry at the very point where it attempts to undermine the validity of the concept, is cited with approval by Griffin for its claim that there is no clear-cut line between oral and written literature. That's what Finnegan claims. Now, such a claim is itself uncontroversial, provided that it is not used as an excuse to ignore the existence of oral poetics. True, there is no universal principle that can be invoked to explain the differences between oral and written, but differences exist all the same, varying from society to society. To show, as Finnegan does, that literacy is not incompatible with oral poetics in some societies is not to prove that written poetry cannot be distinguished from oral poetry. In analyzing any differences, however, we must avoid a common misconception about the very term oral poetry. There is a danger in taking the descriptive term oral or oral poetry in an overly narrow sense, restricted by our own cultural preconceptions about reading and writing. We feel the need to define oral in terms of written. If something is oral, we tend to assume a conflict with the concept of written. But you see, from the general standpoint of social anthropology, it is written that has to be defined in terms of oral. Written is not something that is not oral, rather it is something in addition to, be, to being oral, and that additional something will vary from society to society. It is dangerous to universalize the phenomenon of literacy. Well, at an early stage of his book where he cites Ruth Finnegan's claim that there is no clear-cut line between oral and written literature, we've seen that Jasper Griffin has given himself an excuse in undertaking his own assessment of Homer not to address directly any issues raised by differences between oral and written poetry. Such issues do indeed emerge, however, as Griffin's argumentation proceeds. At later stages of the book, Griffin begins to draw a sharp contrast between myths, which he associates indirectly with the quote-unquote oral origin of Homeric poetry, and then, on the other hand, the classicism associated directly with Homer himself. In this way, for Griffin's paradigm, as also for Wilcock, Homer can become divorced from myth. Homer becomes the hermeneutic model for classicism, 
while myth is left behind as the threatening outsider, which we have already seen Griffin holding up to ridicule by retelling out of context some narratives from Boreal traditions. For good measure, Griffin retells also a Sumerian myth, again taken from Kirk's book, put together as a counterweight to the classicism of the ancient Greeks. These myths are described, are you ready, as, quote, this exuberant and grotesque play of fantasy, unquote. And then he contrasts uh, the Sumerian myths with the Greek myths by saying, well, the Greek myths are different. Why? Because, and he goes on to say, the answer is not hard to find. Greek mythology is distinguished from others, above all, by the dominant position within it of myths about heroes. Heroes do not, Griffin says, in general, turn into ant eaters or make themselves buttocks out of mashed potatoes or impregnate three generations of their own female descendants, nor are they half animals. They illuminate by their actions and by their nature, not the Levi-Storcian problems of the relationship between nature and culture, but the position, the potential, and the limitations of man in the world, end of quote. Well, to achieve this purified version of the Greek hero, Griffin's book has to take out of, consider, out of consideration not only the comparative evidence supplied by such disciplines as social anthropology, but also much of the internal Greek evidence. The many-sidedness of Greek heroes in particular, and Greek myth in general, can be illustrated with a wealth of testimony about both non-literary as well as literary sources, including, by the way, such traditional forms as the fables of Aesop. See, I would immediately think, well, there are fables of Aesop, which has a great deal of uh, theory amorphism, but whoops. Um, Griffin has already dismissed the fables of Aesop as, and I quote directly, déclassé. <laughs> All of this is not to say that we should not expect Homeric myths to have distinctive features. But whatever distinctness we find in Homer cannot be formulated, let alone explained, without recourse to a comparative perspective. The comparative method vindicates the efficacy and communicative power of myth in oral tradition with reference to the here and now of the occasion for which the myth is being performed. If we do indeed find comparable levels of communicativeness in Homeric poetry, in situation where a character adduces a myth with reference to a given occasion in the narrative, I maintain that there is in such situations no justification for explaining the dovetailing of myth with occasion as a matter of personal invention, of Homer's veering away from the myths of the past. I agree with Wilcock that the key to changes in myth is the occasion, and Wilcock actually uses the word occasion in which people find themselves. But I disagree with the influence that such changes in Homeric narrative are a sign of arbitrary personal invention predicated on an immediate context, which is purportedly likewise a matter of arbitrary personal invention. I suggest instead that such quote-unquote changes are a matter of selecting
suggest further that the variation in myth is itself a built-in tradition, compa compatible with patterns of variation in the real-life situations of traditional society. What goes for the myths cited by the characters quoted by Homeric narrative, I argue, goes also for the myths that shape the outer narrative that frames the quoted myths. What is demonstrably applicable to characters in Homeric narrative is indirectly applicable also to people in real life in the spectrum of situations framed by the same traditional social system that frames Homeric poetry itself. In other words, the outer narrative that frames mythological exemplar is itself a mythological exemplum large scale. The problem is, Homeric poetry makes no overt reference to its own social context, the occasions of its own potential performability. We recall the words of Leach, quote, myth is true for those who use it, but we cannot infer the nature of that truth simply from reading the text. We have to know the context to which the text refers. Still, if Homeric narrative itself gives us texts within its own text with appropriate contexts to which these texts refer, then that outer context out there in the real world is at least indirectly recoverable. Just as the myths that are cited by characters in Homeric poetry are part of a complex system of myth-making, not a disintegrated mass of raw material that is arbitrarily reshaped by the framing narrative, so also the framing narrative itself is constituted by myths that are part of that same complex system of myth-making. The organizing myths that constitute our Iliad and Odyssey, the framing narrative of Homeric poetry, share in the formal characteristics of myth as described by social anthropologists. By way of applying both comparative and internal analysis, the theory can be advanced that the contents of the Iliad and Odyssey are controlled by the principles of myth-making, the building blocks of which can be described as themes. My theory has it that theme is the overarching principle in the creation of traditional poetry like the Iliad and Odyssey, also that the formal heritage of these compositions is an accurate expression of their thematic heritage. Such a view of Homeric poetry as built from myths that organize it can become a hermeneutic model for addressing the whole vexed question of the unity of Homeric composition. As such formulations would take into account the factor of change over time in the traditions of myth-making and how any current phase of a myth as a system is responsive to changes in the here and now of the latest retelling of myth. But the point is, the changes themselves are responsive to the traditional variants that are available. Changes can be symptomatic of traditional variation. Such interpretations, however, attributing qualities of subtlety to the use of applications of myth turn out to be far too subtle for the tastes of some experts in Homer. One critic called Verbenius, finding fault with the use of the word theme as I've tried to define it earlier, reacts to one of my earlier writings with the following sarcastic comment about the 
positing of a traditional theme of rivalry between Achilles and Odysseus, to which your dean referred us to earlier. Virginius says, and he's being very sarcastic about uh, my formulation and best of the Achaeans, he says, in the first sentence of his introduction, page one, poetic form is equated to diction and content to theme. The theme is a mysterious kind of being. It belongs to a, quote, he quotes from me, a latent dimension that keeps surfacing, unquote. And he italicizes latent and surfacing. <laughs> and he continues to interpret uh, what I'm struggling to say. In other words, he says, it is visible only to those seers who feel themselves at home in the sphere of ambiguities and paradoxes. Now, Nora strikes back. Uh, I submit that complexities of meaning are visible not only to seers, but also to anyone who takes the time to examine empirically the workings of tradition in myth-making, as evidenced in the Homeric deployment of mythological exempla. A, a more kindly critic who also takes exception to um, my line of analysis, for example, with the embassy scene in Iliad 9, observes that, quote, so sophisticated a technique of allusions is quite alien to the early epic and would hardly be found even in Hellenistic poetry, unquote. Even some defenders of Homer's classicism, whom we would expect to be receptive to the idea of Homeric sophistication, which I'm obviously trying to promote, have been known to take a similar view. One critic refers to, are you ready for this? Some scholars who are now finding in the epics meanings of great subtlety that have been undetected for three millennia. <laughs> well, okay, okay. I maintain that such subtlety becomes imaginable and even comprehensible once we begin to appreciate the vast array of variation, variance, potential mythological exempla available to Homeric tradition at any given point of the narrative. My favorite example will have to suffice here, and I'd better be brief because my time rapidly runs out. We know that archaic Greek narratives about hostile encounters between heroes and divine rivers can traditionally picture the river as taking the shape of a ferocious beast. The favorite example of mine is that poetic tradition where Heracles is wrestling the river Achelous, and at the climax of the battle between the hero and the river, the, the river changes into a roaring, raging bull. And it is at that point that Heracles tears off the horn of the bull, which is one of the many variations on the theme of the horn of plenty. Now, we may contrast with this very traditional uh, visualization of hero versus river the treatment of the fight between the hero Achilles and the divine river Xanthos in Iliad 21, where Xanthos does not take the shape of a bull, right? 
and is not even theriomorphic. There's nothing beast-like about the river Xanthos. Rather, the narrative opts for the Varian tradition, highlighting the elemental aspect of the river as water personified, struggling with a hero, Achilles, whose ally is Hephaestus, god of fire, fire personified. And as my moral teacher, Cedric Whitman, uh, said so beautifully in his book, Homer and the Heroic Tradition, uh, the battle escalates into a battle of the elements, a battle of fire and water. Well, it's been argued partly on the authority of the scholia to this passage and the Iliad that the other version that I just gave you where you have the hero fighting river taking the shape of hero fighting uh, a, a bull. Uh, it, it, it's been said in the ancient world and it's said today that that version seems to be a pre-Homeric version, an older kind of version. It's, an, it's enough for me simply to say that that kind of version stems from a tradition that is independent of Homer. I think that's enough to say. But the wonder of it is this that the Homeric narrative goes out of its way to make an indirect reference to the other tradition. The river Xanthos, in the heat of battle with the hero Achilles, is described in Iliad 21 at one particular moment as, Tara, Menukos, Eutetaros, bellowing like a bull. The simile amounts to a conscious acknowledgement of a Darian tradition. Okay, here comes my final paragraph. The, the timing is good. In seeking to persuade those who are as yet not quite convinced by the argument that mythological exempla in Homer stem from a rich, complex, and yes, subtle tradition, I close by inviting them to consider the meaning of the Latin word exemplum which is where we started, as revealed through its own contexts. I have to write some things on the board very quickly to make my punchline appropriate. speech. Um, the meaning of exemplum has been summed up admirably in the Latin etymological dictionary of Alfred Ernoux and Antoine Meillet, who defined exemplum, are you ready, as an object set apart from among other objects like it for the sake of serving as a model. For something to be set apart to be taken, the verb is emel, ex emel. What does it have to be? It has to be outstanding, exceptional, as in the Latin derivative of ex plus emel, eximius, 
which means exceptional, outstanding. Exceptional as it is, the model as model is traditional. The model is a precedent, and that precedent would lose its rhetoric, its very power, if it were to become known that someone has tampered with it. It is one thing for us to recognize changes in the development of myth over time. That's fine for us to do as empiricists who are standing outside the tradition and looking in, as it were. But it's quite another to assume that changes are deliberately being made by those who use myth as exemplum within their own society as a way of distorting myth. As precedent, mythological exemplum demands a mentality of the unchanging of adherence to the model, even if we as empiricists know that myth is changeable, ever changeable, through time. The exemplum is there so that society may follow it or shun it. And that, in itself, is an exercise of the mind and spirit. The Roman lexicographical tradition says it well in contrasting those two words that I use here on the blackboard to end my talk with, exemplum and exemplar. As you can tell, the Roman grammarians will use exemplum as the marked member of the opposition and exemplar as the borrowing default. So here comes the setup. Do you mind if I, I read it to you in, uh, in Latin first? <laughs> Okay, the Roman grammarians say, and the contrast is between exemplum and exemplar. Exemplum est, quote, sequamus autuitemus. Exemplar, ex quo simile faciamus. Iud animo aestimator, istud oculis conspicitor. And I'm going to turn it around a little bit to get the rhetoric better. Translation. An exemplum is something that attracts us or repels us, whereas an exemplar is something we make something else resemble. The exemplar is visible to the eye. The exemplum is sensed in the spirit. Well, ladies and gentlemen, I speak of Homeric exemplum, not exemplar. Thank you.